You are Locked On Heat, your daily Miami Heat podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, Heat Nation. You're listening to Locked On Heat, the Locked On Podcast Network. Thank you for subscribing on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Himalaya. My name is David Ramil. As we continue our discussions of the best seasons in franchise history, it makes absolute sense to talk to the man who has seen them all from a courtside seat, longtime Miami Heat broadcaster, one of the absolute best in the business, Mr. Eric Reed. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. That's my pleasure, David. Hope you and, and all who listen to your podcast well right now. Absolutely. And, and that goes for you as well. And, and I do have to ask, how, how are you and, and your family doing during these difficult and strange times? We're doing okay. I, I think uh, all things considered, right now we're counting our blessings that, that, we're, that we're healthy, uh, that we haven't had to deal with the coronavirus in our own home yet. My wife and my 14-year-old daughter and I with our dog here in Boca. And we have two older children that are, that are adults now living in the New York City area. And, and both are artists. One is a singer and one is a, a sculptor. And thank goodness they're both taking great care of themselves in, in an area that's been hard hit, obviously. Yeah, that's great to hear. Uh, hopefully they'll continue to be healthy during these difficult times. But I did want to talk to you about that, actually, before we launch into our discussion of the best seasons in Heat history, because I was there on Wednesday during that game against the Charlotte Hornets when the season was abruptly suspended. And I'm sure it was a very surreal moment for you as you're broadcasting the game. And obviously Miami was trying to claw their way back from a double-digit deficit to the Hornets. What was that like for you as you were finding out this kind of information? Did you find out about it as you're immersed in covering the game and, and talking about what's going on on the court and then finding out news items as they're trickling in off the court? It was a surreal night, David, and, and funny that you should ask me about that now. About a half hour ago, um, somebody that works on the social media department for the Miami Heat, Joe Bergestan, put out a, a tweet of Haslam's shot uh, at Brooklyn, game 82 of last season, Dwayne Wade's last game. Uh, it's about a 12 to 15 second clip of, of Wade, one assist shy of a triple-double in his final game, and and they have my call on it. And, you know, I retweeted it about maybe 10 minutes ago. And I said, you know, of all the games and all the moments, this is among the best. And, and maybe my favorite moment in, in franchise history was that singular perfect ending uh, moment for, for Dwayne Wade. Those those last two games were magical. So you go from the very top uh, to one of the worst experiences we've had. And, and that was March 11th. Uh, that Wednesday game against Charlotte when the league suddenly stopped. And, and David, I got to admit to you, on the ride down to the game, I have about a 45-minute drive from Boca Raton down to Miami. And and I think word had already come out by that time on my way to the game that, that San Francisco had told the Warriors, and, and there was an announcement that Golden State's next home game would be played without fans in the stands. It was the next thing we all thought was coming. Yeah. So as I drove to that March 11th, Charlotte at Miami game, I, I was thinking very clearly that this is probably going to be the last time we have fans in the stands for a while. And I thought, well, you know what, we're, we're still going to have to televise. It'll be a great service to the fans uh, that can't come the game. So I thought short term, I'm going to still be working. And then that that fleeting thought uh, came upon me of, you know what, what happens when the first guy tests positive? Because it's inevitable. 
And, you know, the thought came in my my head and then out as I arrived at the arena and got to the game. And then maybe five minutes before tip off time, John Crotty and I are getting ready to do our open. And I I looked into the stands at the American Airlines Arena and it was nearing a capacity crowd, another you know great crowd at, at the Heat's house. And and there was a part of me that was heart warmed by that, that even with this impending threat, you know, our fan base turned out like that. And then there was another part of me that felt like, wow, maybe maybe this is not the right thing uh, to do. But the game starts um, and I always have my iPad up uh, near me on the broadcast table. And what I do at timeouts, I'll take 30 seconds to a minute to, to, to you know, sort of scroll through my Twitter feed because you never know if it's a, a comment from a fan or a comment from a writer covering the game or from around the league. Uh, you never know when news breaks or, or you should be aware of something. And that particular night, David, I was I was wondering to see what the next tweet would be regarding, you know, the league shutting down fans. And I think the first red flag, and it was a big one that came out that night, was a tweet that I saw. And I don't even remember what point in the game it was. So we were probably, you know, at least an hour into our game. Because all of a sudden I see a tweet that says the Utah Oklahoma City game has been postponed and both teams sent back to their locker rooms. And again, this is in the middle of our broadcast. So I'm, I'm taking that news in and thinking what could have caused a postponement of that game? And then maybe 20 minutes to a half hour later, uh, the tweets start appearing that it's Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz and he's tested positive and 45 minutes after that. Uh, We're in the middle of the fourth quarter and the Heat, by the way, is playing one of its worst home games of the season, probably its worst home game of what was a great season at home. And I would say it was the worst loss of the season at home. I I think it's the only loss we had against an under 500 team at home all season. And by the end of the night, it it didn't even matter because midway through the fourth quarter uh, comes a tweet from the National Basketball Association that basically said the league will suspend operations following tonight's games. And obviously that's the first time any of us have ever had to read or absorb a tweet like that. If you were one of the teams or or broadcast crews that were working at the moment, uh, imagine that all of a sudden you find out this is your last game until further notice. And, you know, we finished the game. Uh, That became the lead story. I think it was, you know, a delicate one to tell. You wanted to make sure your information was accurate off of of the many tweets that were appearing. And you also didn't want to not cover it. It was too important and too much of an evolving huge story. So I think we struck the right balance of finishing covering the game and also keeping fans up to date with uh, the, the, the gravity of, of that moment. And, and I remember when the game ended, you know, it's, I have a pretty traditional post game, uh, routine. I, I take my time leaving the table and then I stop by the press room and pick up the final stats and notes of the night. And then I find my way up to the family lounge, uh, you know, to end my night. And that night, all the broadcasters met up in the family lounge as we often do. Only this time we stayed there a lot longer. I, I think we probably all stayed at least an hour. I, I don't even remember the conversation. There wasn't that much of it, but it was just weighing the gravity of the moment and then a 45-minute a drive home to let it sink in, and and that's how suddenly uh, we all got unplugged. But I, I really believe that it was, you know, in one on one hand, it was a, a, a bright, shining night for the NBA because Adam Silver had this 
the courage and the conviction to do what was right and shut down the league. And I think that set off a very positive chain reaction around America of, of not only sports leagues, but other things sort of shutting down and uh, people realizing that we all needed to, to practice self-isolation right now to, to try to, you know, get this thing under control. So that was the night it really took hold in a very different and very real way for a lot of America. I can't imagine how you were able to stay focused on trying to cover the game. I, you know, actually, again, trying to cover one of the worst games of the season and talking about what's going on in the floor and having your mind race on all these different topics. I actually managed to talk to Myers Leonard a couple of weeks ago when he was on the show and asked him about what he was experiencing during the game. And he said he found out from UD, who obviously wasn't playing at the time, but he, he started seeing the news trickling in. And of course, Myers wasn't in the game either as he was nursing his injury. And I can only imagine as players, if you start to hear this news, you know, you're trying to focus on what's happening on the court. You're trying to beat your opponent, et cetera. And you're thinking about the long-term health of you and your family and, and, and your, your livelihood with the, the game itself being called into in possible cancellation. And so I can't imagine what it was, must have been like for you to try and stay focused. Obviously, your, your, your years of experience, you've probably seen a great deal. But as you pointed out, this was a unique experience for you. It really was. And it was on so many levels. One in just, um, you know, someday I'll look back at that, at that fourth quarter or the second half and, and evaluate and self-critique and, and try to, to judge it in hindsight of how well did we handle that situation as broadcasters. It was a as I tried to describe to you earlier, a, a difficult balance to strike, covering it in a credible way, making sure the things you were, were saying were accurate and based on factual information. And uh, in the midst of sport, it made you come for the first of many times since face to face with the notion of, of how as important as it is to all of us, how insignificant it even made that loss feel at the moment and, and how it, it and how, in a big picture way, insignificant the loss of sport is uh, to the bigger picture of what we're all dealing with right now. So that was the first of many times that we've had to stare the truth right right into the eyes. Well said. Well, let's let's move on to the happier topics as we kind of take this uh, trip down memory lane. One of the things that, as a network, we've been doing is talking about the best respective seasons for, for each franchise in NBA history. And obviously so many great seasons for the Miami heat over the course of their 30 years. And I, I think it's difficult to pinpoint one, but I'm curious as to your criteria for what you define as the best seasons, because obviously there are many different factors that you could take into consideration. But when you look back at the course of your career and covering all these different years for Miami, what, what stands out to you as far as the best seasons in heat history? Well, that's a difficult question and, and maybe in some ways an easy question. Um, you know, one of the best seasons was the first season, you know, and, and that's crazy to say it. A team that, that lost their first, you know, 16, 17 games um, uh, and only won 15 games the whole year. But you only go through an inaugural season for a franchise once. And there were so many, you know, memories of of feeling like a, a basketball trailblazer in South Florida, charting a new course and, and developing a new territory for basketball fans. So it was unique. But in terms of the quality of play, um, I think the 96-97 season will always stand out. It was the best of, of, of what was the first really great era of Heat basketball. Pat Riley's, you know, 61 win, original road warriors led by Alonzo and, and, uh, 
Tim Hardaway and Jamal Mashburn and P.J. Brown and Bashan Leonard, um, Marley, Ike Austin. Ike Austin, um, yeah. You know, that was that was the first taste uh, that we had of what it was like to, to be a contender and, and to make it to the Eastern Conference Finals. And then all four seasons of the Big Three era with the middle two, obviously the, the back-to-back championship seasons, um, you know, will always stand out. You know, I know the season that, that you and I talked about off the air uh, that does go down as the greatest singular season in Heat history is the 2012-2013 season. You know, franchise record 66 wins, franchise record 37 and four home record, uh, franchise record 29 and 12 on the road. Of course, the, the the long winning streak that was, you know, phenomenal that lasted 26 games um, and culminating with, you know, what I think is arguably the best championship series in NBA finals history, the 2013 finals between the Heat and the Spurs. You know, at minimum, you had seven future Hall of Fame players involved in that series. I think two future Hall of Fame coaches and a series that, you know, game six and game seven, you know, two instant and and forever classics. So that would stand out as as the all time best. And and I think it's as crazy as it's going to sound, you know, Dwayne Wade's last season, mm-hmm. which turned out to not be a playoff season it, that, that season. It was my 31st year as the Heat broadcaster. This is my 32nd, but that was year 31, and it just shows you 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 can experience the same thing over and over again, and it's always different. And that year taught me another lesson of you know sometimes the the prize or the goal shifts at the very end. And that whole season, it was about you know following a Heat team that was struggling and competing to to earn a spot in the NBA playoffs. And I think it was game 79 or 80 when that dream got dashed and we were mathematically eliminated. And it wasn't until that point when we got to Dwayne Wade's last two home games, uh, last two games of his career, one home game and then the game at Brooklyn. You know, it finally hit me right then that, you know what, the, the prize of this season and the gift of this season is not the playoffs. The gift is is all of us experiencing Dwayne Wade's last dance. And it it proved to be so memorable and and so moving and I think when I look back at, at all the you know thousands of games we've called, I, I think I'm over 2,500 regular season Heat broadcasts. Those last two games of Wade's career will stay with me forever. And you know the the, the big win against Philadelphia at home when he jumped onto the table at the end of the night, followed the the very next night of him getting just his fourth ever career triple double in in his final game. I, I I tabbed it on the air that night as the perfect ending. That, that game at Brooklyn, I, I call it the best 19-point loss in, 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 in NBA history. Nobody remembers that the Heat lost that game in Brooklyn. Uh, it was just the, 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 the perfect closing act. How do you say perfect when, you, when your team got hammered? But just for him to end with a triple-double and, and to have the, 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 the assist that sealed that triple-double come in the final 20 seconds of the game on a jump shot by Haslam, you, you can't write a better script than that. And it was really cool to go through that. And I, I think that chapter was sort of uh, concluded this year when, when the Heat honored Wade with that weekend tribute, the, the, the night his, his jersey went up into the rafters. It just closed, a, you know, the most unique chapter for an individual in franchise history and capped off an amazing journey that, that not only us as broadcasters, but all of Heat Nation as fans got to experience uh, an incredible journey. One of the, 
you know, from a Hall of Fame career from start to finish was pretty unique. Yeah, I always think of that Brooklyn game as a sort of a, a microcosm of the season in that, obviously, as you pointed out, they lost. Nobody actually even remembers that because it was all about the moment, the the exhilarating feeling of watching Dwayne have his one last shining moment there with a, a, another career triple-double. And, and that's fantastic to watch. And it was so much of the season, just obviously you want to make the playoffs. You want to be able to push the postseason into you know, Dwayne's last season there. But for him to be able to be, I, I think, just to gain the acceptance of so many around the league. Obviously, he's always been a very popular player. But to see franchises all around honor him and to, to note his greatness within the, the historical scheme of things in the NBA context was a fantastic thing to see. And so it was uh, a perfect capping to a, a fantastic career. We'll be back with Eric Reed, his memories of the Big Three era, Miami's championship winning seasons, and much more from his decades of broadcasting. You're listening to Locked on Heat. Let's shift a little bit and go back to that 12-13 season because I guess mathematically uh, it is the best season as far as overall winning percentage and it does result in an NBA championship. But you obviously you, you covered the team the year before in 11-12. They won their the first championship of the Big Three era. And what was your feeling going from that first year – I'm sorry, that first championship and then going into that second year, the 12-13 season, and what changes they made by adding Ray Allen and Rashard Lewis? And, and what were your, your thoughts about how the team was continuing to make progress along those lines? I think, that David, to start the, this part of the conversation, I would go back to, to the to – the, the year before the first year of, of the big three. And, and, uh, you know, you look back at, at that team, uh, 2011, 2012, was that the year, uh, 2010 was, uh, the first year of the big three when they faced Dallas in 2011 finals. That's it. That's it. Yeah. You know, that was, you know, it seemed like, you know, listen, LeBron came in, you know, not, not three, not four, not five. And, Nobody yeah. knew how difficult or daunting a task it really was to, to be a dynasty. Um, until you're in that, there's no way to, to replicate those type of feelings, pressure, fatigue, high sure. stakes, all of it. Um, and that first year, I think, set the foundation for what was to come. We didn't know it was just going to be a four-year run, but losing to Dallas that, that first year, when it appeared early in the series that things were going to go your way and and then losing in game six at home and and all of a sudden the the reality of that hitting you right in the face of they're the better team it's not our time and the pain of not only losing in the finals but losing the deciding game at home but i think that that slap in the face to that first team set the groundwork and and the, the stage and the hurt that motivated them, lifted them, brought them together in a in a in a, in a, a more meaningful way through adversity Absolutely. to what was to come. So, you know, after winning the first championship, um, you know, uh, you know, against Oklahoma City and the job they did against, you know, it doesn't hit. It's funny that that's the middle championship of the three. I, I always call it sort of like the the overlooked uh, of the three championships. And yet, to me, history makes it look even better when you see what became of Durant, Harden, 
and, and Westbrook, the greatness of all three of them as individuals, what they've all gone on to accomplish. And that was them uh, at an earlier age. And we all remember how James Harden struggled in that series. Well, guess what? Out of that wreckage came the rest of his career. And, and Durant got to win a couple titles with Golden State. But uh, that was a terrific performance by Miami. And I always say that's the overlooked championship. But obviously adding Ray Allen, um, Pat Riley, you know, the, the master architect and builder of, of this dynasty and, and of this franchise in a bigger way. You know, he added to it and and Ray was a perfect addition. It was, you know, so recently he was on the great Boston team with Pearson and uh, Garnett that Miami struggled with and and finally vanquished. So to add Ray, one of the great shooters in NBA history, man who obviously delivered the biggest shot in, in, in the history of the Heat and, and one of the biggest shots ever made the NBA finals. So. That was a great, great addition. I, I think the only negative, uh, yeah, and looking, listen, recently, uh, both NBA TV and ESPN, uh, I think it was ESPN that recently replayed game six and seven of 2013. I, a couple of weeks earlier, I watched the whole series on NBA TV, and I sat back and absorbed almost all of that again. And seven, eight years later now, it meant so much more to look back at it, to realize the greatness of that team that won the back-to-back titles uh, to realize the, the, the greatness of, of that series between the Heat and Spurs. I mean, two such similar franchises, uh, both filled with Hall of Fame players, both led by Hall of Fame characters in Greg Popovich and, and Pat Riley and Eric Spolstra. Um, just a classic series. So just an appreciation for that. I think we, when you flip fast forward to, to that last year, though, you didn't see it during the regular season. It was harder to to notice earlier in the playoffs, even though Miami did struggle a little bit uh, in, in vanquishing Brooklyn, and then you know had to had to deal with Indiana again. But then you saw what happened in the finals after splitting those first two in San Antonio, the absolute letting go of the rope and losing the next four, and not looking like the team that it had been for the last three and a half years. And it was only in hindsight that you could sort of put the pieces of the puzzle back together and and see that probably from within it had begun to splinter. And uh, it led to LeBron's departure and the sudden demise of the big three one by one. So um, it lasted shorter than we would have all liked. But I think, you know, as the years have gone by, I, I can only tell you how I feel. I just feel in a basketball way forever blessed that the big three came together in Miami and gave Heat fans and, and all of us uh, that work as Heat broadcasters, you know, the ride of a lifetime uh, to, to be there for those four years. We were the epicenter, the Heatles. We were, we were the only team that really mattered, and, and the whole world was watching, and we wouldn't trade that for anything um, and always feel a, a debt of gratitude to everybody that played on that team, including and especially LeBron James, because the hurt of his departure – you know, has subsided and the, the appreciation for his time here is obviously increased. I'm glad you brought that up because I was just having that discussion with another media member and, and he was mentioning that those four years and, and specifically those two championship runs in, in, the, in the middle, they might kind of get overlooked that even as recently as last year, as everybody was looking at the best teams of the decade, somehow with Golden State's emergence and, and San Antonio's consistency and everything else, 
Miami and their championship runs kind of tend to get overlooked a little bit. And I'm not sure if that's uh, a result of the the kind of vitriol that they brought on themselves in 2010 or, or whatever. If you say they brought it on themselves or it was just manifested as a result of the decision and everything else. But either way, there were these kind of vitriolic feelings. And then I'm not sure if those ever really subsided during the four years of LeBron's tenure in Miami. But you're in looking back at those two years and, and those two championship runs, some a lot of people, I think, actually consider them to be a disappointment. I know you obviously don't feel that way, but do you have any kind of sense from a national perspective whether or not people in the media or, or other broadcasters kind of view LeBron's tenure and those championships as being somewhat under the radar, not necessarily as impressive as we consider them here in South Florida? Well, I don't know. I mean, it'd be hard for me to, to give you an answer on how, you know, the nation consumed that. But I, I think, uh, you know, for that four-year segment, Miami was the most talked about, the most watched, the most loved, the most hated, uh, the most respected, the most disrespected team in the NBA. It was the epicenter. So, you know, could it have been better? Yes, they, they, they could have not. Uh, stumbled that first year and let uh, J.J. Barea, uh, you know, help steal the title for Dallas. But it, it took that that painful learning lesson uh, for that team to understand how tough it really is to win a championship. And it, and it was the catalyst to to steal them, to make them better, to win back to back titles. They, they could have made it three in a row. Um, you know, that team, for whatever reasons, began to splinter from within. Um, it ended up being the breakup year. Uh, had they been able to stay together, I think they could have won two or three or four more titles. But that wasn't their destiny. And guess what? That's what makes what the San Antonio Spurs were able to do um, that much more special and unique in their history and in, in NBA history. They're unique in the sense, and maybe it's the last time we'll ever see it, you know, we saw it with the Celtics in the 60s. Uh, you saw it with the Spurs, you know, in more recent times. But that's that's a dynasty to keep Ginobili, Duncan and Parker there together for, you know, 10, 12, 13, 14 years. We're likely never to see anything like that come close to happening again. Uh, Golden State seemed like it would be invincible, last forever, did not. So. It's always been hard to keep stars and superstars and championship teams together. Um, and uh, I think now, you know, more than ever it is. So any champion is going to be remembered on a historical basis forever. And I think that segment of those four heat seasons, um, it has a special place in heat history. And I think 2013 and that championship series that we've already discussed will will earn Miami its rightful place as a worthy and um, and special back-to-back champs and a, a team that won one of the best series in the history of the finals. Well, Pat Riley's always spoken about the disease of Moore, so uh, I, I think that's certainly applicable when you look at, at teams nowadays and, and players trying to build their individual brands and, and do everything that they possibly can to make the most of their individual NBA careers. It's, it's harder and harder, I think, in today's landscape to keep these teams intact. But uh, it was absolutely a phenomenal run. But 12-13, I felt like it was a different, better version of the team that we had seen the previous year. And obviously the peak 
during the big three era and adding Ray Allen and adding Richard Lewis. And then a move that kind of often gets overlooked, the addition of Chris Anderson midway through the season. What were your thoughts about the addition of Anderson and his larger than life personality? I know off the court, it was a little different than the persona that was so publicly displayed there. But when it comes back to Chris Anderson and his impact on the team, what were your thoughts about his addition? Well, I, you know, it was uh, a, an important, subtle addition for, for the Heat. Um, you know, the backup center at the beginning of the year was was Dexter Pittman. Uh, you had Josh Harrelson and Juwan Howard on that team. Um, Haslam actually started 59 games that year. But, but the Birdman, you know, he played half that season. He gave the Heat a defensive-minded, um, decent rebounding, backup center to, to Chris Bosh. Um, you know, he had matured to the point in his career that he was a good fit. He, he lightened up the mood. Um, that's when they did that, that famous locker room video of everybody dancing together. And, um, so the Birdman had his moments, but don't, let's not forget Shane Battier and, and Mario Chalmers. It's, you know, listen, every team, even this past year's Heat team, you had your stars in Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo. But what makes all good teams special um, and takes you to the next level is how good are the role players. You need them to be very good. And I thought this year's team had had great role players. Obviously, the championship team did as well. And when you can plug other guys in around three stars, um, they all take their turns having their moments, whether it's it's Mario Chalmers, Ray Allen, Shane Battier, Mike Miller. Uh, they all had their moments. Gary Payton, when it was his turn in 06, Antoine Walker, Jason Williams. Um, role, that's a role player's dream to be a role player on a championship team. It, it takes stars and it takes the, the co-stars and, and, and the reserves to, to do their thing and, and take advantage of their moments. And, and they all have their little, their little significant spots in, in Heat and, and NBA history now. Yeah, I I, I re- recently rewatched the 2011 finals, and uh, one of the things that stood out to me, aside from LeBron not playing in his usual his usual aggressive self, was the fact that Miami's bench just wasn't particularly good, and, and unfortunately for the Heat, they wound up losing to performances from Jason Terry and 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 Brian Cardinal, JJ Barea, and others. It was the players surrounding the greatness of Dirk Nowitzki that really made that difference in 2011. So as painful as that loss was for the Heat players and their fans, I think it was also a wake-up call about how essential it is to build around the big three, to add the right role players to help take them to that championship level. And I think the first piece in that direction was obviously Shane Battier uh, you know, coming to the team in 2011, right after the lockout. Uh, he was a, a fantastic addition there. And then that kind of snowballed into adding Ray Allen, Richard Lewis, Chris Anderson, et cetera. So there was so many great role players during that big three era. Remember to listen to and subscribe to new and archived episodes of Locked on Heat on Himalaya, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you're on iTunes, please leave a rating and review, especially if it's a good one. We'll be back soon with more from Eric Reed. So I wanted to ask you about what it's like during the NBA Finals, and, and, and forgive my ignorance here, but obviously the team, the, the games are being broadcast nationally. What, how does your role change during that time period? Obviously, you're not covering the games for the local broadcast, correct? 
That is correct. You know, it's funny how it changed over the years. Uh, the first time uh, the Heat went to the conference finals, it was uh, the 97 playoffs. And back then, the way the, the, the NBA television contract was, was constructed, local TV got to go as far as the conference finals. Mm. That all changed in the last couple of TV deals uh, to the point now where local television only gets to do one round of the NBA playoffs. Imagine that. It's, it's the only downside of one of the best jobs there is, uh, being a TV play-by-play man for an NBA team. Think about this. There's only 30 of those jobs out there. I, I am fortunate, blessed, and honored to have one of them. But that's the one downside. The, the biggest games your team plays, you're not doing your particular job. But fortunately for me, um, there's a mindset and then there's a reality. The mindset is don't get cranky because your individual situation may not be exactly what you want when your overall situation is everything you've ever dreamed of. Your team is is moving on and and in, and in our case going on to the NBA finals, you know, you know, all those different times, three, you know, four, four years in a row. But what happened for me, um, this was sort of a the brainstorm of of Ed Philomia, who who's uh, one of the real key people in, in, in arena heat TV. Um, he's responsible for the inside the heat series. He started this, then our executive producer on TV, Ted Ballard, um, embraced it and elevated it where it began with Ed Philomia just wanting me to, to do it into a, a tape machine, uh, do sort of a fake call to all these playoff games that we were not broadcasting on TV. And, you know, I guess they planned on using it when the idea came across in the archives and in, in an Inside the Heat recap show. Uh, we were doing Internet shows where they could use those highlights of our calls. And that's how it started. And believe it or not, those fake broadcasts, I've been doing it every year since it, since we started it, long before we won a championship. And uh, so I got to call all three of the championships, although very few people ever heard those calls. You do hear um that call repeated a number of times. Uh, the 06 one, I know they've used a lot of times uh, for the Heat archive. So I was thankful for it because it plugged me into the games in a way that I was used to. I, I put no attachment to how the Heat used it. That was their discretion. And, and however they used it was fine with me. And um, it kept me involved. So I, I enjoyed it. And that's what I would do in addition to um, appearing on all the Heat pre- and post-game shows that we would do surrounding all those playoff games, uh, most of it on Heat.com. Some of it was rebroadcast on on our on Fox Sports Sun or Sun Sports, whatever it was at that particular time. But it kept all of us involved, and for me, it was really a, a cool thing to do. Tommy Tighe, who does our our uh, Heat Weekly show and is on the on the pre-game show with John Jonathan Zaslow, he would be my color man for the home games. And I did the games on my own on the road. And, and I really, to keep myself entertained, I did it more as a radio call than a TV call. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that because my roots in the business was as a radio play by play guy. It's, it's, it's the first and main thing that I dedicated myself to of, of wanting to become as good or maybe great at that as, as, as I could be. Um, to me, it's a, it's a, I won't say a lost art, but it's a fading art. Everybody wants to be on TV these days, but the true art of play-by-play -play is as a radio play-by-play -play guy, where every word, 
as to the description of of that game for people who are not seeing it. So it gave me a chance to get back to my roots and and practice my radio play by play and and obviously kept me very involved with every single game of all of those final seasons. Well, he, he fans have certainly been blessed with uh, having Mike B- uh, Inglis on the call for a number of years. He's also one of the best in the business. So that that's I did not know that you were also covering the games and providing your own unique voice to to the game. So you're there watching as as Ray hits his shot in game six, watching, as you've just pointed out a number of times, one of the best series in NBA history. Can you take my listeners through the emotions of that moment? Obviously, you've seen so many great moments, so many captivating emotions over the course of your career. But obviously, that was one of the key points in, in Heat and perhaps even NBA history. What was your thought process during Ray's shot? And, and, and of course, forcing away the yellow ropes for one last time there. Well, it was funny. The best story I have about that is really how my wife took it in. But um, for me, I, you know, with and, and I recently watched the game back, as I told you, um, when when NBA TV had the whole series on and that and that feeling with twenty eight point two seconds left down five. LeBron had just missed two threes in a row. And that sickening, empty, awful feeling of losing a championship on your home floor. I mean, we, we, we all went through that collective pain of losing three different series to the Knicks in a deciding game at home, but magnify that, you know, how it felt in 2011 to lose to the Mavericks in Miami for a championship. And now it looked like it was getting replayed. And then all of a sudden how it changed a missed free throw here, um, a Greg Popovich substitution, taking Duncan out, and and giving Bosch an easier path to the the most decisive rebound we've ever seen an individual player get the Ray Allen shot but how much more it took that shot just took the game into overtime in game 6 uh, the game saving play by Bosch on the on the on the greatest closeout and in, in the history of closeouts blocking Danny Green's shot that could have won it for the Spurs at the end of OT and then that drive home that night um you know, after the, the thrill of the Ray Allen moment um, and, and and the overtime victory and, and the emotionally exhausted feeling we all left the building with that night, it was on the ride home that night that, that it hit me. I'm like, oh, my God, we got to come back and play a game seven. Yeah. And game seven went down to the final minute. For my wife, it was a, a different, more emotional story. Um, her mom was, was with us and sitting next to her the year before when we won the championship and she partied with us in that post-game party at the American airlines arena. And now it was a year later. My, my mother-in-law sadly had passed away a few months earlier and my wife down five uh, with 28 seconds left closed her eyes and started to do a little sort of meditation type prayer and, and was remembering, you know, that her mom was with her the year before when we won and, and, you know, and now she's not. And, my wife's eyes opened only when she heard the, the, the roar of the crowd. And as she opened her eyes, Ray Allen's shot went through the basket. And, and it, was, it was like a, a little Miami Heat miracle uh, to open your eyes to that. And the other moment I, I, I remember so vividly about the fake broadcast and the thrill of, of a moment that I, I shared with no one in particular, but actually one person in particular, we, were, we did game six at Dallas uh, the night that, that – that Jason Terry's jumper went, went off the mark and the Heat won their first championship. And I was broadcasting that championship game uh, near the top of Reunion Arena in Dallas. Um, there was one 
Heat employee there with me, Jason Cohen, one of, one of our close friends. And, and, and Jason and I, after the game ended, had to go down on the same escalator that the fans were going down on. Now, I had to get down to the court to be part of the postgame celebration and do interviews. And I had to ride down the same escalators with all these hundreds and thousands of heartbroken Dallas fans. Hands, and I could not contain my joy and enthusiasm. And it's a wonder that, that Jason and I made it down. Jason Cohen and I made it down the courtside uh, intact. <laughs> the, the Dallas fans uh, accepted our joy okay. And then I get down to the arena floor and I look up at the stage they had erected. And the Heat team was already standing there getting ready for the, for the finals trophy presentation. And I look at the back of the – as I'm looking at the stage from the floor. I see my longtime partner and close friend, Tony Fiorentino, standing on the back of the stage with the team. And of all the great things Tony and I have shared and all the great things Tony has done for me, that might have been the single best thing. Because when I saw Coach up there, I decided to jump up there with him. And I don't know if there's a camera shot that ever got it, but Tony and I uh, hold that moment close to our heart always that we were on the stage with our team. Uh, the night they became NBA champions for the first time. It was an unforgettable moment. Fantastic. Yes. So many great memories, obviously, not just you, but the coach as well. And, uh, and, and even your wife sharing such a, a blessed special moment, uh, so much, so much in heat history and it's the incredible impact. And it's fantastic to see that, that you as well as anybody ever, I think have, have navigated uh, the fine line between being very, very passionate about the team and conveying the emotions that come with, covering and watching your favorite team, but at the same time, always remaining very impartial and unbiased. And, and I think so many of my listeners and, and viewers around uh, the world appreciate that what you've been able to provide as the voice of the heat for so long. Thank you so much for taking the time, Eric. I hope you and your family continue to stay safe and do well during this difficult time. Thank you so much, David. Listen, that's been a journey. I, I've had the pleasure to share with, with uh, heat fans for, for 32 years now and it's been a, an individual journey for me, you know, hopefully improving and evolving as a broadcaster. I, I think I, I still reflect the home team and the Heat's emotions. Um, I hope my call is objective enough where it's credible and honest. And uh, we take great pride, our whole crew does, in telling the other team's story uh, on a night-to-night, game-to-game basis as well and as intelligently and as informed as we can. So uh, some people appreciate that. Others don't. Uh, but you do the job the best way you can to respect all the participants involved. So thank you, David, for keeping Heat fans in touch with their team and uh, keep up your great work. Thank you so much, Eric. Uh, so many of my listeners will undoubtedly listen to your voice and feel a little comfort during these times because you've always been there for them as you cover this team for ends you have for so many years. And that's Eric Reed. Thank you so much for listening to Locked on Heat.